You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, we do have a lot of visitors here this morning from, I'm sure, all kinds of places. I'm not going to try and get them all right. Uh, And we're excited to have you here with us and blessed. And we pray that you'll be blessed in your fellowship here with us this morning. Please turn to Job chapter 29. Job chapter 29. So how many of you have ever longed for that time that some call the good old days? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, a few of us? Yeah? Stories I've heard. Stories of five-cent Cokes, right? 30 cents a gallon gasoline. Those often had the list of fond remembrances shared by those who were there, or sometimes almost there. Apparently, I was born five years too late to have lived during the time when Coke was a nickel, that time ending in 1960, and a year too late for gas at 30 cents a gallon. Back then, according to the overly nostalgic among us, there was no serious crime. You never had to lock your doors, and life was immeasurably better in every way. You ever heard these stories? I've heard these stories, yes. Of course, these are the same people who will tell you about having to walk to school in a snowstorm every day, uphill both ways, with burlap sacks tied around their feet if they were lucky. And they were glad to have it, or something like that. Now, if you're the type that likes to reminisce about the good old days, I have good news. There it is. Good Old Days magazine has been sharing reader-provided stories, recollections, and photos from days gone by since 1964. Now fast becoming the good old days themselves, right? Billed as the original Nostalgia magazine, this easy-to-read collection of memories captivates both young and old alike. This is taken just from their website. I didn't make this up. The publisher of Good Old Days magazine continues to uphold its mission of enabling creativity, nurturing memories, and upholding positive values even after all this time. Each bi-monthly issue contains many reader-submitted stories about the past. Previous articles include The Magic Box on the Wall, The Ringing Meant Something Exciting Was About to Happen. Sunny Side Up, Her Dad's Breakfasts Were Unforgettable. Good Old Days on Wheels, Our Sunday Ride, The Trips Seemed Boring and Monotonous Until... And Party Line Rules, There Was a Catch to That New Phone... The school next door, they never had a reason to be tardy. Bartering for back-to-school shoes. Brown eggs developed into brown shoes. Home remedies, sweet treatments. It sounds too good to be true, but a candy cure might work for you. And from the archives, (laughs) nothing to fear. His dad dished out a fitting punishment. I don't know if that's nothing to fear or not. At least not in my house. Anyway, uh, when I was growing up. People wax nostalgic for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they recall simpler times. Sometimes they recall safer times. But almost always, they recall what they would regard as happier times. I mean, they can't have been the good old days if they weren't good, right? Well, maybe. But even if our circumstances were somewhat better in the past in some way, what does that do for us now? Recalling the days of nickel Cokes doesn't lower the price of soda today. And remembering when everyone felt safer in general doesn't change 
the safety that you have or don't have today. Remembering how good life used to be doesn't change how things are today. In Job chapters 29 and 30, Job is comparing his former life to his current existence, and it's clear that he's longing for the good old days. Without reading every verse from either chapter, we're going to look at Job's comparison and talk about some of the implications that might exist for us today. Today's message is called, That Was Then, This Is Now, and we're in Job chapters 29 and 30. Now, there are at least six different areas in Job chapters 29 and 30 in which Job considered his former state to be better than his present state. And chapter 29 is all about how good things were previously in Job's life, while chapter 30 is all about how terrible things are now, as Job relates it. And while we don't relish the thought, all of these things are areas in which our own lives can change for the worse. Oh, they can change for the better, too. But Job's life at this point is all going one way, downhill. In Job 29, verse 6, Job describes his prosperity, saying, My steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Now, rather than envisioning uh, Job's sandals uh, dripping with melted butter, I think we're meant to understand this as representative of luxury and ease. Job's harvests were Bountiful, and the, the olives that he collected, apparently, uh, as they pressed the oil from them with these stones that would be in the olive press, uh, the, the oil was produced in an abundance there. We learned in Job chapter 1, way back when, that Job had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, which is a good thing if you've got that many of all those animals. But Job's wealth caused him to be described as the greatest of all the men of the East. That was from way back in chapter 1. Now we have no reason to believe that Job was not thankful to God for all that he had. But if Job was at all like most people, he probably got used to being wealthy. I don't mean that we all get used to being wealthy because maybe we're not all wealthy. But we get used to the standard of living that we attain we get used to that. It may be new and exciting in the beginning, but then after a while it's like, well, I just, you know, I'm accustomed to this. This is what it's always going to be. I think Job was most likely grateful for, for all that he had, but he also became accustomed to having all that he had. And, and we put that in the category of that was then. And then as Job is speaking here, as he relates this, this is now. Job chapter 30, verse 15, Job says, My prosperity has passed away like a cloud. And as the rest of, the, of chapter 1 unfolded, back when we looked at that, three of Job's servants arrived, one after the other, to relate how all of Job's sheep, camels, oxen, and donkeys were either stolen or destroyed. Each of the servants in turn added, And I alone have escaped to tell you. And we are told that the rest of Job's servants were killed as well. Now wealth is relative, and you don't have to have a lot to be sensitive to losing some or all of what you do have. Job did have a lot, and he lost it all in a very short period of time. Job's friends interpreted this as a sign that Job was a sinner, out of fellowship with God, and in need of repentance. Job didn't think he'd done anything to deserve this kind of loss, which made it even more difficult for him to understand 
and to accept. His thought was, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I want you to think for yourself if this thought has ever gone through your mind at any point of what you've experienced in your life. Job's thought was, this should not be happening to me. And I'll confess that thought has gone through my mind at the expense of not thinking, really, you want it to happen to somebody else? Okay, yeah. Job longed for his former times of prosperity. And as often happens, wealth was accompanied by security in Job's life. According to Job 29, verses 18 through 20, Job expected to live a long and happy life, secure in his wealth, and immune to the fate of the wicked. He says, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters, and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. In some ways, he reminds me of the man about whom Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 12. In Luke 12, verses 16 through 21, we're not going to read the whole thing, but you, you are either familiar with it or you can read that on your own later. Luke 12, 16 through 21, Jesus told a parable about a rich man who was seemingly secure in his wealth and who had so much in his harvest that he was making plans to tear down his barns and build bigger barns to store it all in. I've been... Uh, Given my son Nate a hard time. Nate's not here this morning. He's up at camp with Audrey. Uh, and Nick and Caitlin are there now. Uh, Pat will be coming this evening. Uh, we're having camp. We'll talk about that later. But um, uh, I've been giving Nate a hard time. He comes back from a hard day of putting up hay. And I know you guys have been having coming back from hard days of putting up hay, right? Okay? And you go out there, hey, 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 hey. Are we got it all in yet? No. Where are we going to put it? I don't know, because what? The barns are full, right? For practically. Do we have room for all the hay that's in the field? No. So I've been given, I've been given Nate a hard time. Nate, we need to tear down our barns and build bigger barns. No, Dad, that's not the answer. Well, you know. Okay, but like this guy. He had so much in his harvest, he was making plans to tear down his barns and build bigger barns to store it all in. That's not really the problem. But here's the problem. The man's assessment of his future went like this. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And that falls into the category of that was then. But in this, in our this is now moment, disaster strikes. For the man in Luke 12, his soul would be required of him by God. In other words, he would die. And all that he owned would pass to someone else. Job's case is kind of the reverse, though no more pleasant. All that he owned had already passed to others, and he expected to die any day. He suddenly felt a loss of security, and it was a feeling with which he was not familiar. In Job 30, 15, he says, Terrors are turned against me. That loss of wealth made Job feel vulnerable and helpless, and he didn't like it. And we're probably no different than Job in that respect, but it ought to make us stop to consider from where does our security really come? If we're trusting in our wealth to provide security, we need to know it can be gone in an instant. Wealth is not deserving of our trust for security. Proverbs 11.28 says, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. And righteousness comes from having a right relationship with God. 
And the security that it provides, having that relationship, the security that it provides is independent of our wealth or our lack thereof. And so we need to be careful what we trust in for our security. Sometimes, even when a person is struggling financially, something that you'll often hear people say is, well, at least they have their health. You've heard this. Good health is something that we treasure. And much time, effort, and money are expended in trying to achieve and maintain good health. In the United States, in 2015, and I couldn't believe this number when I read it. In the United States, in 2015, $3.2 trillion were spent on health care. $3.2 trillion. That's an average of about $10,000 for each and every man, woman, and child in the United States. Job had enjoyed good health in his life. In Job 29.4, he describes himself as being in the prime of my days. But as we know, having followed this story along, that was then. In contrast, Job's health, as he relates this, has now deteriorated in ways that he probably had never even imagined were possible. In his words, and this is just a brief glimpse, this isn't a comprehensive list of all the things that were happening to him, but from Job chapter 30, verses 16 and 17 and verse 30, he says these things about his health. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me, and my gnawing pains take no rest. My skin turns black on me, and my bones burn with fever. Now we often hear the expression, if you have your health, you have everything. It's a nice sentiment, but it leads to conclusions like this one from American author Augustine Burroughs. He said, when you do not have your health... Nothing else matters at all. Job wasn't quite so simplistic in his outlook, but he had certainly lost his health and he suffered greatly physically. I I think Woodrow Wilson said it better when he said, if you lose your wealth, you've lost nothing. If you lose your health, you have lost something. But if you lose your character, you have lost everything. I would say that's close but not quite the exact perspective we need to have. I prefer the perspective found in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 36, where Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And that would include his wealth and his health and forfeit his soul. Some things are more important than even your health. And the state of your soul is one of those things. Jesus promised eternal life in which a person could live even if he died. Physical death is not the greatest thing about which we can concern ourselves. Spiritual death is of far greater significance. Another way of saying that is our spiritual health is of greater import and needs more attention than even our physical health does. In Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5 say, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord, 
The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Again, back in Job chapter 1, we learned that Job had ten children, seven sons and three daughters. In Job 29.5, Job counts the blessings of his former days to include the fact that his children were around him. We remember how Job would intercede for them in case any of them might possibly have sinned as they were feasting in one another's houses. Job's children were very important to him, I think we can tell. And of course, that was then. In addition to losing his herds and his servants, Job chapter 2 also relates that all ten of his children were killed at the same time by a wind that caused the oldest son's house to collapse. Now the loss of a child, in my opinion, is something that can be fully understood only by those who have experienced it. And I have not, so I will just say that. In Job's this-is-now perspective, he had experienced it tenfold. And he mentions his mourning in verses 28 and 31 of chapter 30. He, said, he says that he mourns without comfort. And I wonder if God's comfort was really unavailable to him or if he had just not accepted the comfort that was available. In the Sermon on the Mount, in the section that we call the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus made it clear that in his kingdom it works like this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now does God's comfort completely eradicate the pain of losing a child? I don't imagine so. And again, I don't have that experience. And if it does, probably not in this life. But I can only believe that God's comfort makes that loss, or whatever other loss we might experience, it makes it bearable. Not to take it away. It's not that we never suffer the pain. It's not that we never experience the loss or continue to grieve, but it makes the loss bearable. God's comfort is available in the kingdom of Christ. In two of the longest sections of these two chapters, Job talks a great deal about the respect that he once had among other people. And if you read Job chapter 29, verses 7 through 17, you'll see him paint a picture of himself as a respected and respectable community leader. Others stopped to listen when Job spoke, and they accepted his advice and direction. His patience and wisdom were well known and well regarded. Job was also respected for his benevolence as he helped the poor, the orphan, the sick, and the widow. He was just in his dealings with others, assisting the blind, the lame, and the needy, all the while opposing the wicked and thwarting their wicked schemes. That was then. But now, Job is a target for even the most disreputable of men. Those thought to be fools and those who were not productive members of society considered themselves now to be better than Job because of his affliction. Job is unable to defend himself against their attacks, and it seems that no one else will stand up to defend him either. Job sees himself as not being merely humbled, but as being humiliated as his enemies try to take advantage of his adversity. And what probably hurts worse is that Job has lost the respect of those whom he used to help as well. Now, I don't know that Job was as vain or as proud as the Pharisees were in the New Testament. I, I really don't think so. 
But it does make me think of the warning that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 23, not to be like the Pharisees. Part of what Jesus noted about them, the Pharisees, comes from Matthew 23, verses 3 through 5, where he said this, But they, that's the Pharisees, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Now having the praise and honor of men doesn't have to be wrong or bad, but it's far better to have the praise of God whether you have the praise of men or not. And then the final area we will consider in which Job believed his former state to be better than his present state is that of God's blessing. Correspondent to Job's wealth, his health, and the blessing of his children, Job believed that he was favored by God. Job says things like, God watched over me. His lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Job believed he had God's protection and guidance in addition to God's physical blessings of wealth and family. But, according to Job, that was then. Job's this-is-now statement about God's relationship to him is the same as what we've been hearing in previous chapters. From chapter 30 verses 19 through 31, now Job says these things about God. He has cast me into the mire. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. You dissolve me in a storm, for I know that you will bring me to death. Uh, Most oddly, perhaps, Job says, I've become a brother to jackals and a companion of ostriches. Jackals and ostriches, that's that's just kind of a weird reference. Uh, Some translations say owls. Your translation may say owls there instead of ostriches. But the point is that these creatures are solitary animals. They are alone. Job feels like he is all alone. And he feels like he's been abandoned even by God himself. And this is where we get into that one of those areas in which it's Job's honest expression of what he's feeling. It's just not so. Not everything Job says is absolutely correct. The reality is that Job would already be dead if it were not for God restricting what Satan could do to Job. Job's lack of knowledge about his situation prevents him from seeing that God is still at work and that God has plans beyond the scope of Job's foresight or imagination. What God will yet do in Job's life is more than Job is currently capable of believing, in my opinion. Yet God is not idle, nor has God abandoned Job as Job believes. God is faithful, and he can never be unfaithful and still be God. Deuteronomy 23, 4 declares about God. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now, as then, as ever, God is perfectly faithful. And in every area of his life, Job had good reason to remember the good old days. He had no idea 
and no expectation that his life would ever again resemble what it had once been. As far as he knew, those days were, were the, the, that was then, were never to be seen again, as far as Job knew. As far as he knew, every good thing he'd ever had, every good thing he'd ever experienced was in his past, and the only thing he has to look forward to at this point is his death. Yes, it's true that Job expects God somewhere, somehow, sometime to vindicate him for his righteousness, but he also believed that that might not happen until after his own death. This hopeless outlook is part of what makes the book of Job such a difficult book to study. And I hope that as we've gone through it, it hasn't been just, oh man, getting pounded again, pounded again. I hope we have seen the bigger picture. I hope we have seen the times when we should be able to draw encouragement and strength from what we know to be true about God, even though Job was experiencing these terrible, terrible situations. And we have to remember, we know more about Job's situation than Job knew. So we know that God hadn't turned his back on Job, even though Job suffered such great loss and misery. We know that Job will gain back double the possessions that he had before. And he will have seven sons and three daughters, as he had before. He will live another 140 years And he will see his descendants to the fourth generation. We know all that. But at the end of Job chapter 30, Job knows none of that. And this should tell us that it isn't our circumstances that define us. Now, I'm not saying that God never brings difficulties on anyone for the purpose of discipline. I believe that he does. And I'm not saying that God never blesses anyone for righteousness or obedience. I believe that God does. But Job's life makes it clear that good times or bad times don't define who you are. Having fallen on difficult times, Job despaired. And it was a difficulty that maybe none of us will ever experience, and I hope not. But it makes me wonder about us now. Have you fallen on difficult times lately, maybe, when things used to be much better in your life? Don't lose heart. Check your relationship with God, yes, but also trust Him by being obedient to His commands, even when times are tough. Is life going really well for you right now? Great. But don't assume that it always will. Determine to continue to live a righteous and godly life, even if your circumstances should take a downward turn. Whatever your circumstances are, God is the great constant throughout. James 1.17 declares that there is no variation or shifting shadow with God. And Hebrews 13.8 states that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. No matter what your then or what your now look like, you can count on God and Jesus to be the same Always. And by way of invitation, you know, we've been talking about the good old days. Job, Job was reminiscent about the good old days. Well, I want to talk about the bad old days for a moment. I know that sounds like a weird way to start, but bear with me. All of us here who are Christians can point to a time in our past when we were very much worse off than we are now. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, describes our lives before we became Christians. This is how Paul 
uh, describes this at that point. Before we became Christians, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Romans 5.10 describes us in that former state as enemies of God, while Colossians 1.21 says that we were alienated from God and hostile in our minds toward Him. That doesn't sound very much like the good old days, does it? Sounds a lot like the bad old days to me. For Christians, we have the joy of being able to say, that was then. Through faith in Christ, repentance from our sins, confession of our faith, and being baptized into Christ, our now is that we have been reconciled to God and we are no longer His enemies. But if you're no, not yet a Christian, then this is now. Put that back up. If you're not yet a Christian, then this is now. Those words from Ephesians and Romans and Colossians describe who you are today. Children of wrath, alienated from God, and enemies of God. God never intended for you to live your whole life like that. He sent His Son Jesus to die on a cross for you, so you could be forgiven, restored to fellowship with God, and so you could have the promise of eternal life in heaven with God. If you are not yet a Christian today, and you want to put those bad old days behind you, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.